You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. So, Martin, my wife and I are watching a variety of shows at the moment. We're watching 30 Rock from 10 years ago as a comedy. We're watching Better Call Saul and a variety of other things. Um, but half of our time, and I'm sure this is the same for you, is uh, spent trying to work out what will we watch and for what reason. We do exactly the same thing with our nine-year-old when she's just drifting through Netflix and Stan and Binge and all the other um, entertainment platforms so that she can curate her own experience based on what her needs are around entertainment. This week, I understand we're talking to Linda Brown, who is the Entrepreneur of the Year and, and has a very similar view, I imagine, to education and the opportunity to shift education, much like Netflix did, away from the standard uh, stock standard blockbuster video. Well, what a beautiful um, way of introducing this week's episode, Carl, because um, you're, you're really hitting there at uh, one of the increasingly prevalent debates in our sector about, you know, moving towards more personal experiences and the opportunity to use technology to replicate what's happening in many other sectors, which is to move away from tired models of standard ways of doing things and to find more... Um, tailored ways of getting industry relevant education for a, a much more choosy workforce I, I think we've said many times that the pandemic's changed lots of things but one of the dominant things it's changed is the expectations of, of consumers and customers and in our case the expectations of learners and employers I think it goes pre-pandemic for me anyway you know s- sitting around boardroom tables for the last 20 years listening to leaders talk with you know chief people officers or HR directors as they actually should be called about the talent that they need to execute their strategy uh, those conversations didn't include a lot of conversation around their prerequisites for university qualifications that those conversations were very quickly starting to evolve into do we does this is this person the right culture fit do we have cultural tolerance for them are they going to foster the right culture are they going to have a culture that drives our strategy and then we might start talking about what are their qualifications certainly their experience is more heavily weighted than their qualifications so i think this is something from my perspective that's largely overdue but i've of course worked at that end of entrepreneurial tech company for a long time. So I'm not sure if that's uh, we're playing catch up or maybe I'm missing something. You, you've used some important words there about cultural fit and, and entrepreneurial activity. This week's guest as Australia's Entrepreneur of the Year is a fascinating um, guest for us. And the way that she sees entrepreneurial activity as being identifying and spotting a gap in the market and filling it is a really novel and, for me, interesting way of describing that. She also talks about the way that she came into being the CEO of Torrens in terms of cultural fit. And it makes me think really hard about the way that we we, we recruit vice-chancellors into universities and other leaders and what they, what they do coming into an organisation with a culture and how they impact it by the things that they typically do. I think there's lots of lessons learned from a conversation with Linda Brown. Well, Martin, before you give away the entire interview, why don't we go to that interview with Linda Brown just after this short message from our sponsor. While the global pandemic has forced the education sector to shift online, 
OES have been delivering high-quality online education services for over a decade. Having built thousands of online units and supported over 50,000 students, OES partners with universities across areas including learning design, learning analytics, simulations, student support and more. Discover how OES can help support your institution's digital strategy. Visit oes.edu.au. Our guest today on HEDEX is Linda Brown, the President and CEO of Torrens University Australia. Linda was formerly the CEO of Laureates Australia New Zealand, and she moved to the Laureate Group, having earlier been Deputy Vice-Chancellor at Swinburne University of Technology. This year in 2022, Linda was Australian Entrepreneur of the Year. Linda, welcome to HEDEX. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And Linda, you've had a role of President and CEO of a private university operating in Australia that's owned by a US-based global provider of education. That's a that's an unusual place to be. And how did you come to be in this role from a position of leading vocational education in a large Melbourne-based university at Swinburne? That's a strange route to us to an unusual role. If you look at um, my background, I'm definitely a unicorn. So actually, even before that, started off in financial services. So that gave me the advantage of being able to count. And then when you look at everything in the UK that I did from private providers to you know colleges that were um, going through massive change and being part of the emergency team in the UK, that then brought me to Australia. Um, and I was actually brought in by the Queensland government, I say, to make um, technical and further education sexy. That was a big challenge. <laughs> but I managed to um, amalgamate a few um, businesses and create Metropolitan South, which is one of the most beautiful um, tertiary education providers in Queensland. I was on um, the board of Griffiths and, and higher education and created a thing in Queensland called Small Business Solutions, which was um, a big innovation for the Queensland government. So I've kind of always had a background where industry and education meets. Um, and then I was taken down to Swinburne during the Bradley Review, which um, your listeners will know all about, one of the big changes in education to maximize the dual sector. So it wasn't just about running vocational education, although that's a, that's a good thing to do in itself. I'm not decrying that in any shape or form, but the job was to look at the private college that we had at Swinburne, the TAFE that we had at Swinburne and Swinburne University and find the glue that would help the students participate across all three ventures. So from there, we then created Swinburne Online, which I'm sure you will know about as one of the biggest innovations in education in Australia, partnering with SEEK and Swinburne to create Swinburne Online. I was a senior exec on at the table with Ian Young when that happened. And then from there, I decided I was going to leave Swinburne at that time. And SEEK asked me to come and run a very small set of colleges that they had, Think Education that they were then selling to a very big conglomerate, as you know, with 56 universities laureate. And I said, I would be happy to do that if they gave me the opportunity to create the first new Greenfield University in Australia in 20 years. So interesting journey, Martin, long way around, but all connected. Wow, in interesting journey indeed. And your current role then is, um, is president and CEO in a university that also has a vice chancellor who's been a 
former guest of, of, of ours on headaches. I wonder if you can help understand from your perspective what the responsibilities and priorities are that go with these two roles and how they operate in relationship to each other. So if you think about our governance structure, um, we report to a NASDAQ-listed board, um, as well as having a phenomenal board in Australia with many vice-chancellors, Jared Sutton, had Dennis Gibson on it, um, you know, um, Greg Crafters on there, just a fantastic, fantastic board. Um, so you think about you've got an upward audience, which is your responsibility to your shareholders, um, you know, and, and investors, very large investors. So um, it's critical that you understand the market. It's critical that you understand your EBITDA. It's critical that you can talk the language of your investors and you run it like a business even though it's a beautiful business because we're a B Corp. So um, it's really important purpose meets pro profit for us. And then you really want the best academic you can possibly get. So for us to have a vice chancellor who concentrates on the quality, absolutely sits shoulder to shoulder with me. Forget about hierarchical um, flow charts. We don't, you know, it might be on a piece of paper that the vice chancellor reports to me, but you've met him. He's a gentleman of substance. Um, I've worked with him for a long period of time. He's one of the best in his field and he's my partner and colleague. Um, and he's, you know, a phenomenal academic. So he wakes up every day and thinks about academic quality and the future of work. So it's a, it's a wonderful partnership. That's fascinating to hear a description of it in those terms, because it seems to relay some of the principles of, of that I understand Torrance to have of being like a more conventional public university and how it operates in some ways with distinct features of being a private institution. And I wonder what, why is Torrance different in that way? I guess it is inevitable with its ownership and, and, and how it organises its, its executive leadership within its governance system. And what are the other implications of this beyond those that you've described so far? We might have four or five different brands because we have a portfolio of um, businesses, not just Torrens University. We have Media Design School in New Zealand. We now have just bought an asset in Colombia. We have um, Think Education, which is a very successful vocational education provider. And we have Torrens University. So if I take my general manager and Blue Mountains Hospitality School. So if I take my general manager for business and hospitality, which would normally be a dean position, he's managing a market, pricing, product placement, geography over four different brands so that they're not all competing with each other and we can face the market. And then sitting underneath Jerome, who's my general manager in that particular position, we still have an executive dean. We have an executive dean who is managing quality, managing professional development, um, managing um, innovative curriculum. Um, so we probably get the best of both worlds, to be honest, Martin. It sounds like that that um, that dual role and that complementary role between yourself, yourself and Al Alvin as the VC is replicated and cascades through other levels of management in the way that you're describing it. And I presume then that the focus on entrepreneurship is broadly based in the organisation. Um, you, you've you've mentioned, and I said in the introduction, you were um, awarded the Australian Entrepreneur of the Year, and you've, I think, suggested that one of the reasons for you being awarded that might have been that you lost no staff during COVID. 
What else do you think would be behind such an award being made to you leading Torrens? And how likely it is, do you think, that an award will be similarly made to other people in our sector in the future? Yeah, I think it was really interesting to me. One, like you, I was just so excited that it was given to a university. You know, we've had conversation for far too long about universities not meeting the needs of industry, everybody talking different languages, um, ed tech coming in. You know, I was blessed at, at, um, when I was with Laureate that I also was involved with um, Coursera and saw a lot of the startup with the ed tech companies. Um, and what we seem to be doing was we seem to be fragmenting the industry. Do you know what I mean? We thought all the kind of sexy, innovative ones are across there doing ed tech. We've got universities that are, you know, credentialing and are much more conservative, but higher quality. And then we've got vocational education, which I always hate, which always they always felt like was the poor cousin. But that was for people who couldn't go to university. I'm saying, no, actually, it's for people who are quite smart and want to get out and get a job and have a skill set. So we seem to be fragmenting the whole industry in our own rhetoric, far and less anybody else's rhetoric looking into the industry. So I think one of the things that I suppose I've been able to do throughout my career is create connections, real deep partnerships and collaboration that is innovative and at the front of education. And I'm blessed, you know, I, I sometimes, um, people say you're really, you know, are you better than public universities? And I went, no, I'm, I'm different. And the bottom line is public universities have a lot of, of baggage to deal with. They have big, big infrastructure. They have tenured staff. You know, they have, um, you know, much more um, wage restrictions than I have, et cetera. So for me, um, it's really taking that opportunity of entering a market, finding a gap in a market. Isn't that what an entrepreneur does? And we can see all, all types of education is moving into that innovative field now. So let's hope there's another entrepreneur of the year and they get one step further than me and, and pick up the global batch. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're certainly setting the, setting the path and, sh and shining a light on the opportunities for the future, which is, I suppose, in many ways, uh, how I would see what the Torrance story has been about. You, you've already mentioned that growth has been vital to the development of the university over what is it nine years or so now and there's been phenomenal growth in that time as, as I've understood it from reading about Torrens and, and my earlier conversation with Al Vane the diversification of your markets um, in terms of on campus and online and domestic and international and and and, and operating throughout Australia has been important to that too you, you, you talked about the barriers that public universities have but Torrens is also operating in an Australian regulatory environment. How easy has it been to have this rate of growth and to be a different sort of university in what some would see as being a quite constraining regulatory environment? For me, I really genuinely believe that if you're doing a good job and you're, you know, how can you argue with giving having high graduation rates? How can you argue with having high retention rates for students? now high employability? How can you argue with having curriculum that needs to get assessed and reviewed? How can you argue with the research and the nexus between research and education and new knowledge? So, you know, the regulations are common sense. There's nothing in there that um, should sh you should shy away from if you are absolutely committed to providing quality education. 
I think some of it has been challenging in that our rate of growth um, has been um, unheard of or unseen in Australia. But we started from 146 students. It's not really that difficult to get 120% growth year on year when you're starting from that low base. But obviously they have their parameters and if you're outside those parameters, you throw up a red flag. So we got four conditions on our first inspection. One of them was about growth. Well, we're not worried about that. We've got the plan. We've got the capital investment. We can show that we're getting amazing academics. So we'll just need to keep reporting on that every year and, and, and keep them comfortable around that. But we also got three commendations, you know, about um, working in industry, working with the market. So I think it's a balance. And I think you have to be realistic that if you build anything that's new and different, then you need to really have a conversation and learn from each other around what the negotiables are and what the non-negotiables are. So, I mean, I'm really, that sounds very crass, but I'm really proud of the Texa team who came with us on this journey, held us 100% to account, probably 120% if I was being honest, <laughs> but I would have done the same. Do you know what I mean? And they um, really... You know, quality is quality in education. So as long as you know what the rules are and you make sure that you don't break any and you make sure that you're adding value, then I think we have the same mission. The, the, the overriding impression I get in hearing you talk so eloquently and articulately about um, operating within that environment and the achievements at Torrens, Linda, are, are of somebody in a, an, an, an a place that has a very strong sense of its long-term mission and strategy. Mm. I wonder if you can do two things for us at this point in the interview. One, articulate what that long-term mission and strategy is in your words. And secondly, just make any comment on the extent to which you think that has been impacted by the events of the last two years. Yeah, so I think I think the strategy, so I'm going to say something quite contentious now that I usually say. One of the, one of the reasons that I moved out of public universities into private university was because for me, the strategy is bigger than Linda Brown. So the strategy is about scalability and it's about economic mobility. So it's, it's not smart kids in, smart kids out strategy. And I'm not saying that's a wrong strategy, it's just not our strategy. So our strategy is really about access to, univer um, to university. I absolutely fundamentally believe that education is a human right. And therefore, if you believe that it's a human right, and that's why I'm a dual sector girl, isn't it? You know, you might need to go to TAFE. You might need to take a short course. You might need to take a MOOC. You might need to take, um, you know, a practical course. You might need to take exec education. But choice is critical. So for me, building a university or building a portfolio of companies, which I think is more important, and now especially with our uh, family in the um, United States, where I am now, creates choice, creates diversity, but drives down, and this is where it's contentious, drives down the price of education to increase accessibility and scale, and therefore increase economic mobility. So that that I suppose mission or that purpose is not gonna change. It's not gonna change in the next 10 years. That's the tenants on which we built the company. And then if you think about that, this is where I'm contentious, the universities that I was certainly involved in would change their mission 
you know, if the vice chancellor changed. So sometimes it was a, and we'll know who I'm talking about without saying names. Sometimes it was an amazing person who used to be a colleague who might have created a working man's university. I don't need to say any more. And then the next minute, somebody might come in and want it to be international and start buying up foreign branch campuses. And then the next minute, somebody might come in and say, but we want to be a research intensive GOH university. And I was caught up in that in my career. And I'm Scottish, so I'm quite miserable. So what I really don't like is spending money, especially public sector money, because I was a public sector girl, as you know, in Queensland government for four years, to do things again a different way just for the sake of being different. So one of the problems that I was trying to solve was that when, when I was at Swinburne, 29% of the people across Australia who had got a degree, an undergraduate degree, went back to do vocational education and training to get a job. I mean, that's just mental. Do you know what I mean? So in building a brand new university with a vet um, company like Think Education, with some sexy, innovative design companies like Billy Blue, Media Design School, et cetera, we could start to look at how you could package education and really be like the Netflix of education so that people could buy, pick and buy what they needed when they needed it. But then, Martin, it gets really, really difficult because if you're the way that you look after the customer, the way that the customer curates all that choice, because the more choice and opportunity you give students, the more likely they are to get lost. So we have success coaches who take them on the journey. And for me, that's really critical. So you really then get into the mechanics of what does make us different because content's not the thing that makes people different. It's service, it's accountability, and it's purpose. So I think, I hope that explains the mission and why that mission will be around for another, hopefully, 20, 30 years. Funny you should um, choose the number 20. Well, one of the things that was going through my mind hearing you talk about the distinctiveness and the and the continuity in your mission was the recent podcast episode we had with um, Michael Crow at Arizona State University, who it's it's almost like you sounded like the Scottish Australian Michael Crow for a minute there, Linda. Linda. I will um, take that as a massive compliment. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and one thing that came out of my interactions with Michael and talking with some of his colleagues that connects with something you said a little bit earlier about one of the other things that you think has been the sexy part of the sector if you like has been the the emergence of global ed tech strategies supporting yeah. missions of universities particularly yeah. those that are daring to be different and that to me seems like an important part of the ASU story I haven't heard you so far at articulate how important that may or may not be now and into the future for Torrens University Australia it's critical so when we were part of Laureate, we obviously were the internationalism that we brought to the portfolio, creating 50% um, international students, 50% domestic. We now have 11,000, fourth biggest in the country, international students, but only 8% from China, only 12% from you know, India. We've, we've been able to balance our portfolio very, very well. We bring in the most amount of students from um, Latin America. So, so that was a big learning from Laureate. That was some a gift we got from Laureate and understanding how to how to um, compete in a global world. The thing that we're getting from strategic education, who are our new owners, is 
blending education with educational technology. Capella um, University is one of the highest quality online universities in the world. Um, and that's not just Linda Brown saying that, you read the, the press and the, um, you know, the, the identification of that from the um, American government. You know, it, it's three and a half, um, in fact, eight and a half thousand professional PhDs online every single year. You know, just an incredible machine of technology driven quality education backed up with amazing academics. We have also in the strategic education portfolio four things that I'll be um, working out how I'm going to bring to Asia Pacific. Again, incredible innovations, big innovations, not small and um, take to market, test and try um, innovations. They, these are established market innovations. One's called Workforce Edge. It's a platform that helps employers, you know, employers in America get up to $5,000 back if they put some of their people through a qualification. We've created a platform called Workforce Edge. It's got more than a million employed people, um, you know, more than I think 500 companies on it, access to education, not just in our portfolio, but also other universities as well. So we are the, the um, collator, if you like, of other universities meeting um, industries. I'd love to bring that to Asia Pacific. We have a platform called Sophia that's like going to the gym. People pay 75 bucks a week or whatever, and they get access to free courses. And um, for these courses, they then get credit. In America, if you go into a university with credit, you're 20% to 40% more likely to finish. So that Sophia is just amazing. And again, it's not just for us. It's not just for Capella and Strayer University. It's also for, I think, about another 50 universities on that platform and amazing universities using that platform. And then we have two other innovations called the Hackbright Institute and Dev Mountain, which are boot camps with 90% employment for, for people who've never done tech. And they do a four to six week course and 90% get jobs and they're sponsored by industry. So definitely want to bring that one to our side of the world. And the final one is we own the Jack Welsh Institute, mm. which as you probably know, is one of the top 10 Princeton MBAs in the world, um, totally online, um, incredible innovation um, around um, not just service, but also how do we take the best academic and amplify them, 10x them, so that they can impact more students? So some of these innovations, along with their smarts around data analysis, around service for students, is what's going to drive torrents into the future. Well, it's, um, that sounds like a very exciting agenda for EdTech and a very exciting future for, for torrents. So. So having worked in the executive of a major Australian public university in a dual sector role, and now with all these accolades for, for innovative leadership in a US-owned private university, what does that dual perspective of your own give you as a view of the competitive landscape between public and private universities as you see it playing out in Australia and maybe globally over the next five years and beyond? It's really funny because I don't anymore see public and private universities. Um, I see, thank goodness, universities that have a core set of missions, which we have, and that's stated in the University Act. You know, we have certain things that we have to do, and so we should. That, that differentiates us from other providers. 
But for me, I'm even and with public universities, if you think about Australia, they really are starting to diversify to meet specific markets rather than, I think it was Glenn Davis, wasn't it, who said that we don't really have at that time 40 universities. We have one university that really has multiple campuses. So I think we're starting to look at the rest of the world, which is good, and see that, you know, we only have, what, 42, 43, when you talk about the specialised ones, universities in a $46 billion market. You know, we need competition. And, you know, that was really interesting when they were looking at the, the uh, Peter Koldrick report on how, you know, what do you need to do to be a university? People were saying to me, oh, you'll be really happy. It's really tough to come in now and create a university. And I'm saying, actually, I'm not, because it's good for the sector, you know? So I'm not talking about maybe going as far as America, where, as you know, there is just such diversity and differentiation and quality in the sector. I'm still talking about, there still needs to be a high barrier to entry. But if somebody can do what we, we did, you know, and invest as much as we did to create a brand new university, and then, you know, we've given $2.6 billion back to the economy and productivity in two years, then why shouldn't we um, look at allowing other universities in? And I'm sure, Martin, you saw that Northwestern is, is the first university in, in the UK to be given um, UK university status. So it's coming. We need to be ready to compete. And um, you've, you've mentioned disruption there, and I think you introduced yourself as, as one of the disruptors. What, yeah. what, do you, what do you see as the pattern for significant disruption and transformation and change in the sector by the end of this decade? Is it, are we really going to see Glyn Davis's critique of one university and 40 campuses having substantially changed by 2030? Yeah, I think so. I definitely think so. But I think... Um, the, for me, the real disruption's not coming from within the sector. It's from coming outside the sector. And it's not the ed techs and it's not private universities. They're already here. You know, for me, the biggest issue was enterprise training. When you go and sit on a panel with industry leaders and they tell you that they are not even looking at degrees as a right of entrance to jobs, we're doing something wrong. So for me, one of the biggest innovators that we did to protect our sector was because we believe in credentialing, we believe it's really important, we believe in um, transferability of skills globally, we now every single piece of curriculum that we develop, and we can get curriculum to market in three months, and we have 12 industry players sitting around the table, and 70% of my academics are pracademics, so it's very different, but we do not put one piece of curriculum or course out without an industry badge. Now, by an industry badge, I don't mean somebody's just said that they're using our programs. I just, um, before I came on with you, was on LinkedIn, and I never know what's going on in my organization until I, I look at social media. <laughs> so, you know, they were, they were um, advertising our new fashion degree is endorsed by Vogue. Vogue created the curriculum. Our data analytics is endorsed by IBM. You know, our design courses are endorsed by Canva. And that doesn't just mean that they're putting their name on it. That means they're designing the curriculum with us. We have a policy of earning and learning. So if students are studying with us, they should be able to earn money in their field of study, not at McDonald's. 
So they are in our ecosystem. They're part of our co-creation. And for me, that was critical to get there before it was done unto us and we became irrelevant. So Linda, with all of that description of how you see the sector changing, are you looking forward to leading Torrens University as Australia's leading entrepreneur in this exciting period ahead? Oh, 100%. You know, um, we obviously sold um, Torrens University with COVID, um, two years ago to an amazing company, Strategic Education, with two uh, and, uh, wonderful assets in America. Um, they're long-term um, educational strategic buyers, and we'll get their smarts and technology. The government was really happy about that sale because um, it really was a message to the market that there was incredible confidence in Australian education and Australian universities during a time when the sector was really, really struggling. And really being, um, you know, Australian Entrepreneur of the Year really um, allows me, I think, to hopefully develop and, and show that the relationship between industry and education is strong, can be stronger, and we both have something to add to that relationship to ensure that students can have the economic mobility and the research that they desire. But I think more importantly, Martin, I only have one superpower. Um, but maybe I have two. You know, I won't be I won't be so humble today. Maybe I have two. My first superpower is talent, is creating amazing teams. So when I started the university, you can imagine it was not easy to get academics to come across to a brand new privately owned university. Um, and it took a lot of courageous academics to come across. And interestingly, it was emeritus professors who came across in droves, who had done an amazing job in public institutions, but wanted to come and have fun. So we have some incredible research centers that have come across. We have some incredible um, academics who have come across. And my executive team is the best in the business. And then the second superpower I think I have, um, according to Gallup's strengths, so it's been accredited, is that connections. I really believe this power of strength of Torrens is not that we know what we do well, we know that, but we know what we don't do well and what people do better. So we don't have mission creep. We don't try to get into other people's spaces. We are really good partners and very choosy partners, but very good partners. And I'm just looking forward to co-creating with industry and also with international students. You know, I've been in, in Washington this week up at the Hill and it's really quite frightening what's going on globally in the world at this point in time. And we have such a responsibility around soft diplomacy and with international students. So, you know, we're a B Corp. I believe every university should be a B Corp. We really do balance service with profit. And I'm just really excited about the future of education across the world. Well, superpowers or not, I, th I think the talent that you've brought to us today and the connections that you're for our audience and for the listeners to this podcast that they can make with the story that we've been able to tell on the podcast to date and the very exciting future that you're leading and creating and painting such a an articulate picture of. Thank you so much for being an excellent guest on HeadX today, Linda. It's a real pleasure to meet you. Thank you. I'm really glad to meet you.
Well, Martin, for, for me, that was a very interesting interview. And, and clearly, Linda lives and breathes and has, has is hardwired into her DNA, this idea of change and searching for opportunity and seeking and being curious and then executing based on needs that she identifies. It, that must be something that's quite unique in the industry. Well, I, I, it is. I mean, I thought um, that interview just hit all of the buttons of some of the things that we were being we were saying to each other about um, some of some of the challenges of new leadership, some of the challenges of culture fit, some of the principles of entrepreneurial activity. Just just before we went to the interview itself, I mean, I, I've got a I've got a real sense after all my time in an executive about the pattern that seems to happen when new leaders are appointed in institutions and. Look, we've 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 had the joy of interviewing lots of new leaders in our podcast to date, and but also interviewing people like Linda that have been in continuous roles for quite a lot of long period of time. And I know what it can feel like for many others in an organisation when a you know a new head of school, a new dean, a new deputy vice chancellor, a new VC comes along. You brace yourself for some of the organisational structures and and dominant ways of doing things that have been in place for a long time, suddenly being um, all all shaken up and, and, and adjusted. And that can be hugely disrupting for organisations and stops them building distinctive positions in the marketplace, I think. One of the things, Martin, I think uh, from my experience is we, we talk about leaders and, and CEOs coming in and what their responsibility is. And it's very clear that their responsibility is about imagining the future that they need to create for their customers and their people. It's as simple as that. But that's actually quite a big concept for a lot of individuals to get their head around. So some of the board effectiveness work that we're doing at the moment and board audits and board reviews are helping boards, or in this instance, I imagine councils, we haven't worked with a council, but be very clear on the profile of the person and not just a, you know, a um, psychometric profile or a uh, sociocultural investigation, but Broader than that, being very specific, the council being very clear on the objectives and the strategy that's required for the organisation, and then putting a criteria together to appoint an individual that meets that criteria, so that we're not actually working remedially with a new leader to try and help them not make mistakes or steer them. We're already ahead of the game. So we've got to step up because they're the right fit. Culturally, they're right. They understand the strategy. So someone like Linda Brown would come in and foster a culture of innovation very, very quickly, whereas some of the other leaders that we've seen uh, across industry come in and carry forward some of their conditioning from their prior existence, which is a different time. It's a pre-pandemic time. Some of them, I worked a lot with the banks, so I look at some of the CEOs or the executives that come in from another bank and they contaminate the culture that was that was being fostered towards innovation because, look, it's not necessarily their fault. We're, we're creatures of habit. They go back to and they default to the things that created success for them previously and they look to instill these into a new host and it doesn't work. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely way of describing it, isn't it? And um, I, I love the way that Linda described it. Is it. It's not about Linda Brown. It's not about her as a leader. It's about leadership of of that organisation. And it's, 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 I, th- I think leaders at all levels are under so, so much pressure to make their mark and to, look, let's face it, we all learn from our prior experiences. But the, the ambidextrous leader here is going to be somebody that can not only bring what they've learned before to a new organization and trying to turn it into what 
what what they like and what's worked for them, but can get a sense of a place, a sense of its people, a sense of its culture, and tailor their own prior experiences to where that organisation is going and needs to go. And if, if that can be aligned with where there's gaps in a market that can be filled, I think that's where entrepreneurial leadership has huge opportunities to make a great impact in this dynamic, changing sector that we're now in. And Linda talked about 2030 witnessing significant, substantial material change across the sector. How realistic do you think that is? Do you think that's a, you know, we're only seven years away essentially from that timeline or that deadline. Do you feel that's an accurate or astute assessment? And will organisations have the capability and the foresight to change? It's, it's been fascinating for us, hasn't it, to observe things through this period of 2020 through to 2022 when so much has happened in the world. Um, and there's been so many, you know, forecasts of disruption and transformation in the sector. I mean, we're seeing now Victoria and now Queensland publish results of the financial um, performance of its institutions, which are showing much rosier pictures than many people had, had forecast. And, but that's coming at the same time we've got a brand new government asking some very serious questions about skills and gaps in provision of really industry-relevant skills. So I, I sense the sector as a whole might be falling back into feeling that we've got through this and we can go back to, to an old normal or, or, you know, a new normal that's got a lot of the qualities of the old normal. Whereas I think there'll be entrepreneurs just like Linda who'll see a gap in what others aren't doing, what government, industry and, and learners are calling for, and will bring about real change in that period, Carl. I, I think this is going to see those that, those that are bold and those that aren't stand apart from each other and some really distinctive impacts being made. I think it's coming from three audiences, isn't it? You've got government putting pressure on from a skills perspective. You've got industry saying, we really want to make sure that people have skills that are fit for purpose. And you've got uh, individuals, learners, who are fed up with the traditional system of going to university to learn possibly irrelevant things just so they have a qualification that enables them to move in a particular vocational sense. Well, and I think that last group is a, is a group to pay an awful lot of attention to. I think we're starting to see some signs. I saw it in my recent trip to the U.S. where numbers of, of students enrolling in U.S. universities is falling and there is a, a, a forecast of increasing university closures. There's some data coming out of, of, of our home environment in Australia suggesting increasing numbers of students going to vocational education rather than to universities. Look, I, 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 there's always um, ups and downs and highs and lows in student numbers and student recruitment, but standing back from that and looking a, in a long-term perspective of what customers as learners or learners as customers are choosing, why they're choosing it and what they're really enjoying and engaging with is where gaps in the market is going to emerge and is where entrepreneurial leaders are going to step out from the pack. Absolutely, Martin. And it's going to be a very positive time. I think the we need to be able to observe some of the things that are taking place in the industry and then move in a very positive pro-social sense of collaboration. How are we going to do this? You heard Linda talk about all the endorsements from all the programs where Canva had actually authored some of the content. Um, those collaborations have to be the way forward. Martin, I think that's all we have time for on this episode of HeadX. Thanks so much. Thanks, Carl.